Please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at chapter 15, verses 22 to 28 this morning. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 961. 961. And we're continuing this slow trek through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is a, a rich and a dense chapter. And we're going to go slow and we're going to squeeze every drop of blessing from this chapter. And the chapter is about the reality and the necessity of Christ's resurrection and the various implications because of this truth. And last week we looked at what I call the bad news. <clears throat> and unless you understand the bad news, unless, you, unless we're brought really to despair because of this bad news, we will have no desire whatsoever for the good news. We will so see no need for the good news of the gospel. So what is, the, what is this bad news? The bad news is that every single one of us was born in Adam. This means that in Adam we are fallen. In Adam we are sinners. And because of this we are guilty. Because of this we are broken. We are guilty before God. We are unable not to sin. Unable to obey God's commands. In Adam we are all lost. In Adam, we are helpless. In Adam, we have no hope. In Adam, all die. But the awesome reality, the reality of the gospel, is that while in Adam, we all die, in Christ, that means those who are united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in Christ, we all live. And it's when we personally feel the weight of the sinful condition, feel this desperation, it's then, it's only then, that we recognize the sweetness of the gospel. And then, and only then, that we are amazed by grace. And then we cling to this gospel with all we have. So today we continue looking at these next verses. And here we see God's purposes unfold. And here we see the eternal significance and the eternal implications of the resurrection and the gospel. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 to 28. Here now the word of the Lord. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his, all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjective under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we want you to be all in all. We want you to be all in all at this time. Father, I pray that you will clear our minds, clear our hearts to hear your message that you have for us this morning. Father, I pray that you will anoint my words by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that you will open the ears of everyone here, those here, those watching on live stream. And Father, that we will be changed by this encounter that we have with the living God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I've never served in the military or, or served in combat. But it's often said by those who have served that combat can be described as long periods of boredom punctuated by these brief, intense periods of action. 
And I think much of, of life can be described this way as well. Much of life is, is long periods of not much change, of not much activity. Things are pretty much the same over and over and over. And these periods are then punctuated by periods of an intense activity and intense change. And some of these intense periods could be tragic, like the, like the sudden, sudden death of a, of a loved one. In an instant, an entire life is turned upside down. But these intense times are not all necessarily bad. Yes, they, they could be times of sickness and death and trial, but they could also be times of joy and blessing, such as a marriage or, or a birth of a child. These times are intense, but they are anything but boring. They are anything but ordinary. And redemptive history follows this same pattern. Long periods of not much activity, not much change, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years without much change with respect to redemptive history. And these times are then punctuated by brief and intensely significant events. So let's take a, a whirlwind tour through redemptive history and see how this plays out. There was a creation. There was the fall. And then for about 1,500 years, there was normal activity as mankind fulfilled the, the creation mandate and expanded to fill the earth. There were marriages, there were births, there were giving in marriage, children born, children raised. And during all this time, there was not much going on with respect to God's prophetic timeline. But the people began to sink deeper and deeper into sin, causing the next event on God's timeline, the flood and the destruction of the wicked. And then after the flood and after the Tower of Battle, Babel and the distribution of the, of the people to repopulate the earth, there was little activity in redemptive history. And again, the people forgot God. They forgot the judgment of the flood. They forgot God's requirement. And the people continued this downward slide of depravity. And this regular activity goes on for several hundred years until God's next event on his prophetic timeline takes place. And here God selects a man out of the wicked pool of humanity and makes a covenant with this man. He selects Abram, an old, wealthy, and childless man. Childless man. And through Abram, later named Abraham, God blesses the world. God takes this childless man and through him he makes a mighty nation a people for God, a people who will know God, a people who will serve God. And through Abraham and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons, this people begins to grow. And God then brings this family, at this time about 70 people, he brings them into Egypt to protect them because of there, is a, there is a famine. And these people for 400 years, they prosper in Egypt. They grow to millions of people. And not much is happening on God's timeline during these 400 years until these people fall out of favor with the leader of Egypt, with the Pharaoh, and they are forced into slavery. And it's then the people, they cry out to God for deliverance and God brings, brings raises up a deliverer. He raises up Moses to free God's people out of Egypt through, through mighty acts and miraculous signs. And God uses Moses not only to lead the people to freedom, but to teach them about himself. Through Moses, God gives his people his law. Through Moses, God's people learn about their God. They learn about his character. 
how he wants to be worshipped. They learn how their God is holy and how he expects holiness from his people. And God continues to lead his people by prophets and judges and kings and long periods of time go by where there's little change and everything seems to go on as it has always gone on. And God's people begin to forget God. They begin to forget his holy character. They forget his requirements. They forget his law. And roughly a thousand years after God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, we see slavery again. Because they forget God. They disobey his law. They serve foreign gods. They fail to be holy. And because of this, God's people fall back into captivity into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And even after these 70 years of captivity, God's people return to Jerusalem. They, they rebuild the city. They rebuild the temple. But they're never the same. They're never free again. They are subject to various world empires. Empires represented by that statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream that Hal read about in our Old Testament reading this morning. And then for 400 years, God is silent. God is silent. There's no prophecy. There's no scripture. God's people continue on as usual. Some faithful, but many, many falling away. And then, then after 400 years of silence, God speaks again. And this time it's through an angel. In a message to an old priest and a young girl, a a virgin girl. And these angels announce two miraculous births. And born to Zechariah, the old priest, and his elderly wife, Elizabeth, who is childless and well past the age of of childbearing, was born the greatest of all the prophets, John the Baptist, and to the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary was born by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And even after these miraculous pregnancies and births and a few miraculous events surrounding these births, then again, there's silence. For 30 years, As these two miraculous children grow to be men, everything continued on as usual. And then, then for three years, the world is turned upside down. First by the preaching and the ministry of of John the Baptist, preparing the way of the Messiah, and then by the ministry of Jesus himself. And after those three years comes the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry, comes the, the focal point of all redemptive history, comes the cross. And it's on the cross, on the cross to triune God's plan, a plan that existed before the foundation of the world, a plan to reconcile fallen and rebellious sinners to a holy God. On the cross, this divine plan was executed. And it's really not an over-exaggeration to say that the cross is the single most significant event of all time. On the cross, redemption is accomplished. On the cross, the cumulative sin of all God's elect, that is all, every person that will come to saving faith in him, was placed on Christ, was placed on the second person of the Trinity. It was punished in Christ. God's divine holy wrath against our sins was poured out on Christ and was satisfied in Christ. And the merit and the grounds of our salvation, of the salvation of God's people, is the work of of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is why, that is why this is the most significant event of all time. Now, of course, this merit must be personally applied to each person individually by the Holy Spirit. And this is done at the point of regeneration. 
At the very moment, one by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are made a new creation in Jesus Christ. We are united to him. And it's at this point when we go from being in Adam to being in Christ. And at that moment of regeneration, we are justified in God's sight. A transfer is made. See, the sin of the believer is credited to Christ. It is punished in Christ, in space and time, on the cross. And simultaneously, at the moment of redemption, at the moment of regeneration, Christ's perfect righteousness and, and, and sinlessness is credited to the believer, is applied to us. We are seen as perfectly holy, as Jesus is perfectly holy. My friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is our only hope. And it's the resurrection. The resurrection is the physical proof of this reality. It's the validity of the gospel. The proof that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God. The proof that our sins were atoned for on the cross. This is Christ's resurrection. This is the subject of this chapter that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians. As the text tells us, Christ's resurrection was the first fruit. This means that one day, each one of us who are united to Christ by faith, we too will be resurrected. We too will be just like our Savior. And the crucifixion, the resurrection, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that happened on the day of Pentecost, uh, shortly after this, all of these events happened 2,000 years ago. And these were the last events. These are the last events on God's prophetic timeline. This is the last things that have occurred in God's plan of redemption. And it's easy for us to think, God's done. God doesn't act anymore. That's all past. That's not now. Now, of course, the triune God is certainly active in the world. He sustains the world. He guides the world through his providence. The Holy Spirit is active in regenerating his elect. And the Lord Jesus Christ, at this very moment, is currently sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he is interceding for his church. This is true. But nonetheless, at the same time, we are also in one of those long periods. Long periods of quiet. Long periods where things go on as usual. And it's been 2,000 years since the intense events of God's plan of redemption. And it's easy for us to be deceived. It's easy for us to be lulled into the complacency to think that this is how it's going to be. My friends, it will not. It is not going to stay this way. The next event on God's prophetic timeline, an event that could take place at any moment, an event that we should be diligently looking for, earnestly longing for, the next event is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at this event, then things will change. Then things will get very intense. In this time period, that this is the time period that's spoken of in this passage that we're looking at today. So take a look at, at uh, verses 22 and 23. It says, For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And as we discussed last week, in Adam all die, and this ties back to the, to the creation and the fall. This is, this is what happened. In Adam we all die. And this is really the source of every problem. All throughout history is because we are in Adam, because we are fallen, because we are sinners. And we see these effects to this very day. But in Christ, in Christ, we are all have been made alive. 
And the grounding of this new life is in Christ. It is his person, it is work, his sacrifice on the cross. And this is a real event that happened in time and place, in space. And Christ's work is applied to each one of us in time and space at the moment of our conversion, at the moment when we are regenerated into a new creation in Christ. We are justified as a forgiven sinner, declared by God to be not guilty in God's sight. We are adopted as, as beloved children of God. And we are set free from the power of sin, from slavery to sin. And all of this takes place at the very moment of our regeneration. And Christ has been resurrected as the first fruits, as the representative, our representative. And he was truly raised in space and time. And we too will be truly raised. That's the promise of the gospel. And not at our conversion, but as verse 23 says, in our own order. We will be raised just like Christ was raised. And this will happen at his coming, at his second coming. And at the second coming, the second coming, the dead in Christ will be raised. Their souls, the souls of those who have died in Christ, will be united, reunited with their bodies, real and physical bodies. Likewise, those who are alive at the second coming, they will be instantaneously transformed. And these bodies will be different. They'll no longer be fallen. They will no longer be corruptible. They will be glorified. They will be incorruptible. My friends, this is the next event on God's prophetic timeline. And really, this could happen at any moment. And Scripture tells us to be prepared, to be ready. And not only will all the corruption be removed from God's people and our bodies, but all corruption will also be removed from the world. And we see this in the next couple of verses. Take a look at verse 24. It starts with these words. Then comes the end. Then comes the end. Then comes the end of the creation as we know it. The end of a, a fallen, a sinful, a corrupt, a perishing, a profane world. Then comes the end. And just think about it. Ever since that day that, that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, this world has been under a curse. This world has been broken. And I don't know about you, but I know that the longer I live, the more I realize that this world is not my home. It's not my home. The older I get, the, the, the more I see them, the more I see my own sin, the more I see the, the sin in this world, the more I see the decay in this world, the, the evil in this world, the more I see this, the more I long for the end, the more I long for the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth the more I long for the, the return of the Lord, really to put an end to all this mess, a longing for the Lord to set all things right. And that's the hope. My friends, that's the hope we have as Christians. See, we don't have to solve every problem. Not that we're not to be good stewards. We certainly are. But we cannot solve every problem in this world. We cannot fix this world. We want to. We can't. We, we cannot build a perfect world. We cannot build a, a just and perfect utopia. No matter how hard we try, we cannot do it. Only God can do it. And this text and others tell us that he will. There will be an end to this broken and fallen world. Look again at verse 24. It says, then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. When Christ returns, think of... Think of him as a cleanup man. He will fully and finally clean up this mess of this fallen world. 
And when he does it, he will present this world perfect, a perfect and restored kingdom he will present back to his father. And how will we do this? How will we clean up this, this fallen world? Well, two ways. First, it will be restoration. God's people, those who have been justified, that is declared not guilty in his sight, those who have been sanctified, that is being made more and more like Christ every day, those that are at their death, or, if or when he's still alive in Christ's second coming, they will become what they are declared. When we, when we die, we will become what we will be declared. We will become instantaneously sinless. And at Christ's return, the, the bodies of the believers will be instantly transformed to incorruptible, glorified bodies. And the entire creation itself, the entire creation itself, which now groans because it's been subject to, to sin and decay and death, the creation will be liberated from this curse. It will be restored to God's original intention. This is the first way God cleans up the fallen world, through restoration. The second way, which is mentioned in this verse, is through destruction. Again, look at the end of verse 24. It says that he will destroy every rule and every authority and every power. See, while it's perfectly appropriate for us as believers to long for Christ's return, and I do, and to eagerly hope for this restoration of the creation, and we should, and the eradication, uh, eradication of all this evil, it's important for us to understand exactly what Christ's coming means, what it means for those who are in Adam, for those who are not in Christ. And this is not popular for us to say. Because what it means for those who are in Adam, those who are not in Christ, Christ's second coming means destruction. It means final, complete, decisive, eternal destruction for all those who are, uni who are not united to Christ, all those who oppose God. And each of us, each of us have loved ones, maybe even some people in this room, maybe some people who are watching on the live stream who do not belong to Christ. And if Christ should return at this moment, or if a person should die in this situation, then destruction would be their fate. Again, this is not a popular thing to say. And what is described very briefly in these verses, it says, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, this same concept, the same reality, is described very graphically in the book of Revelation, in the, in the passage that Hal just read. Let me read some of this from Revelation. Just listen to what this actually means, what Christ is doing. Revelation 19, he says, Then I saw heaven open up, and behold, the white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name in which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, signifying their sinlessness. We're following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh, his name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called 
to the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. Listen to what that great supper is. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of men born both free and slave, both small and great. Man, I, I would not even, if this was a movie, I wouldn't watch this. This is, this is horrific. And I saw the beast and the king of, and the king of the earth with armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs of which deceived those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gourds with their flesh. Man, that is... Again, if this wasn't scripture, I certainly wouldn't read it. Now, when we studied the book of Revelation a few years ago, we know that this book is highly symbolic. It's apocalyptic. That means these images are not to be taken as literal. But nonetheless, these images convey a brutal and a horrible reality of God's judgment on the wicked. And this vivid imagery, uh, such as the the treading of the winepress of the fury of of the wrath of God, this conjures up the view of complete and utter destruction of the wicked. I mean, just think about it. Every bit of juice is squeezed out of that grape by the wine press. Well, this is what's going to be done to the wicked. Every bit. They're going to be punished. Every last drop of guilt is punished. I mean, it's a horrible and it's a, a vivid image of the wrath of God. And look at the imagery of the birds eating the flesh of the kings and the free and the slave and the small and the great. <clears throat> this is highlighting the, the humiliation and degrading way God's enemies will be destroyed. Their bodies will be shamefully and mercilessly desecrated. I mean, think about, this brings to the image of after World War II with the, the Italian fascist dictator uh, Benito Mussolini. When he was killed, his body was thrown to the mobs and his body was desecrated by the mobs and, and beaten and, and basically uh, desecrated and hung upside down. I mean, it, it, it was awful what they did to this, uh, to this fascist body. And this is the end of the wicked, the brutal and horrible end of God's enemies. <clears throat> and this is the horrible part to think about it. God's enemies are not Mussolini, only Mussolini and Hitler and, and all the, the ones who are clearly wicked. God's enemies are all those who are not born again, all those who are not united to Christ. That is the fate of all those who do not belong to Christ. If there are any here who are not in Christ, this now, this time right now is the time of grace. Christ's delay in his return is a mercy to give us an opportunity to escape this awful fate. It gives us time to repent and come to Christ in faith and fall upon his mercy. <clears throat> for those of us who love Christ, who, who long for his return, this delay can be frustrating. We hate to see our, our Lord mocked. We hate to see our Lord blasphemed. We hate to see brothers and sisters, maybe even ourselves, persecuted and despised by those who hate our Lord. But don't ever make the mistake. Whether you love Christ and long for his return, or, or you hate Christ and you mock our Christian hope, Don't make the mistake 
to think that just because the opposition of Christ is growing and evil in many places seems to be prevailing, don't make the mistake to think that Christ is impotent and that our faith is powerless. He is not. He is sovereign. And even though he permits evil to exist for a time for his purposes, take a look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. See, Christ is reigning right now. And Christ's enemies will be placed under his feet. And this means not only are they defeated, but they are soundly defeated. And they are defeated to the point of humiliation. And this is the fate of all those who oppose Christ. And this is consistent with both the New Testament reading from the book of Revelation, Christ's second coming, and also the Old Testament reading from, from the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In, in, in the dream, the stone that destroys all these different kingdoms, kingdoms that oppose God, that stone is Christ, uncut by human hands. This stone comes from God himself. And Christ destroys his enemies. Christ humiliates his enemies. Christ renders utterly ineffective all those who oppose him. And notice the last enemy to be destroyed. We see this in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. And we're going to go into much more detail about this as we get to the end of chapter 15, where Paul says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But death is now a defeated enemy. The last enemy. Christ has defeated death. On the cross, death has been defeated. And as such, death has no power over those who are in Christ. We need not fear death. Death has no power over those of us in Christ. And although death has been defeated, death has not yet been eradicated. Even as Christians, we suffer the sting of death. There is still pain in death. Even for Christians, there is separation caused by death. However, for Christians, this separation is not eternal. It is not final. This is why death has no real power over the Christian. We will look at this, we're going to look at this in much more detail, Lord willing, when we get to the end of this chapter. In the last two verses of this passage, they almost seem out of place. Take a look at verses 27 and 28. It says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all these things in subjection under his feet. That is God the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And here what we're given is a glimpse into the true purpose of Christ's work of redemption, the true purpose of Christ's work of judgment. See, redemption, although it greatly benefits those of us who are redeemed, i.e. We, we get to escape the eternal torments of hell and we get the reward of eternal fellowship with the triune God and glory, this is certainly not anything to be minimized, but nonetheless, our joy is not Christ's ultimate goal in redemption. <clears throat> And although the judgment of God's enemies and, and our enemies vindicate the church and the, the suffering of the saints, this also is not the main purpose of judgment. The purpose is not even vindicating Christ himself and his holy name for, that for those who continually blaspheme against him. Now the ultimate purpose of redemption, the ultimate purpose of judgment, like the ultimate purpose of every single thing, 
What is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of this is the glory of God. As we saw in verse 24, at the end, at the end of history, at the end of this fallen existence, Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. The Father is the ultimate purpose. God's glory is the ultimate purpose. And the relational language of Father and Son underscores Christ's role as the Redeemer sent by the Father to accomplish the Father's will. And the submission language here is, it's functional. It doesn't imply that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is inferior to God the Father in the essence of his being. No, it is a relational structure. And the relational structure of the Trinity itself reveals God's nature and displays his glory. So the question is, what does all this mean for us? I, I went through a lot of it preaching for a half hour. What does all this mean? What is our takeaway? What am I to do differently because of this? Well, here's four brief applications for us from this passage. And the first application from this passage is be diligent. Be diligent. So it's been nearly 2,000 years since Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And the early church was commanded to watch for Christ's return. They expected Christ to return in their lifetimes. And we should, we too, each one of us, should expect Christ's return in our lifetime. Jesus himself taught. He taught us to be ready. He taught that he could come when we least expect it. He told parables about wicked servants who were not prepared for their master's return. He told about foolish virgins who were excluded from the wedding feast because they were not ready when the bridegroom returned. And the reality is, <clears throat> the reality is that we must live every single moment in light of eternity. Christ could return literally at any moment. And if Christ doesn't return, each one of us could be called to meet him. That means we could die. Our lives could be taken from us. And we can meet him at any moment. Not any one of us. Not one of us is guaranteed that we will see another day. No matter how stable our times may seem, no matter how strong our health may seem, no matter how much it seems like things will continue on as usual, we must understand that that can change in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And as such, we must continually live with an urgency, an ever-present expectation that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. My friends, this is a guarantee. It could happen today, it could happen tomorrow, it could happen in 10 years, it could happen in 50 years. But it will happen. It is a guarantee. And the only way, the only way that we can stand in his presence, how we can stand on that day, is if we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. If we expect to stand on our own merit, we will be utterly undone. Again, if there are any here who are not in Christ, now is the time of salvation. Now, this very moment, Scripture says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now is the time. We have no guarantee that there will be a tomorrow. That's the first application. The second application is be confident. Be confident. See, it's easy for us to, to look around at the mess in the world, the evil in the world, the injustice in the world, the calamities, both the, the natural disaster. We prayed for the, for, the, for the floods that we saw in the Midwest, the man-made calamities to look at the sin and the brokenness in ourselves and our loved ones. It's easy for us to, to realize that, that even the best people, even the good guys, will let us down. It's easy for us to be simply worn down by life in this broken world. 
in a sense, this, this dissatisfaction with this fallen world. This is a natural reaction of the believer. This world is not our home. And really, we should be worried if we are too at home in this world. But, but we can be confident. We can be confident that there will be an end to this frustration. There will be an end to our feelings of constantly being out of place, feeling that we just don't fit into this world. And the reason we just don't fit in this world, because we don't. We were created, we were redeemed for something so much better than this fallen world. And we can be confident that when Christ returns, that all those who are opposed to God, they will be destroyed. And all that belong to God, even though they are corrupted by sin, we will be perfectly restored. We can be confident. We can be confident that we will be finally, fully, and totally satisfied. Satisfied in God, satisfied in his restored creation, and surrounded by all the saints in perfect harmony. That's our second application. The third application is be joyful. Be joyful. The truth is Christ reigns. And if we are united to him, we too reign with him at this very moment. At this very moment. Christ will destroy all his enemies. These enemies are at this moment being placed under his feet. These enemies, our enemies, they have been defeated. They have been humiliated. And the biggest enemy, the biggest terror that our race has ever faced, death. Death itself has been defeated. And while for a short time death still has power to inflict sorrow, to inflict separation, it is ultimately powerless over the believer. And for the soul that dies in Christ, this is actually our greatest blessing. We are removed from this fallen world. We are removed from this fallen body and instantaneously made perfectly sinless. And we are reunited with those in Christ who have gone before us. And best of all, our faith will become sight and we will behold the face of our blessed Savior. And this reality fills us with joy, a supernatural joy, a joy that the fallen world really can never produce and can never experience. And this joy really should be the mark of every single Christian. That's our third application. The fourth and final application is be certain. We can be certain of this hope because it is not grounded in us. It's not grounded in anything in us. It is grounded in God himself. It is founded on God, his glory, his character, and ultimately God's gracious deliverance and redemption of his people and the judgment and destruction of the wicked is grounded on his holy character, the holy character of the triune God himself. And it displays the the creation, his marvelous glory. So my friends, may we confidently and joyfully rest in this truth. And may we diligently and boldly proclaim this truth, which is really the only hope for this fallen and dying world. And may we proclaim it to this fallen and dying world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these truths, the truth of who you are, that you are sovereign, that you are reigning, and that those of us who are united to you are reigning with you. And that although now we still experience the effects of this fallen world, That is not eternal. That is not our final state. Our final state is to be completely purged of all that is evil, all that is sinful, all that is fallen, both in this world and in ourselves. In that we can take hope, that we can take joy. Father, I pray if there are any who hear my voice who do not know you, Father, you will change that fact, that you will supernaturally regenerate them so that they can go from being in Adam to being in Christ. 
And Father, I pray for all of us that we will boldly proclaim these truths to all we come in contact, even though that these truths are not popular, these truths will be hated. We will be hated because of it. But Father, we are, I pray that we will be faithful to you and that you alone will be glorified. And I pray it all in Jesus' name.